Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was the rats. Stop and get a hold of myself. And we have a huge pleasure today to welcome John Cambo Cambridge, who's got a fantastic book out, Bowie, Cambo and all the hype, that traces his friendship with David Bowie over the years and his time in music and the rats being pivotal in terms of what leads up in terms of David Bowie. Welcome, John. Hi, Jason. First of all, Bowie, Cambo and all the hype, it so vividly depicts your life and and David's obviously Mm. running through that. Why now in relation to that book? Is it that people have been asking you questions about that period in the the late 60s and early 70s? No, to be honest, I've never, ever wanted to write a book. Never, ever. I've helped other people with their books and I've got magazines and and all I say, I don't want any money. I just say, send me me the magazine or send me your book and they sent me signed books. I even thought well, people, oh, there's somebody else cashing in, you know what I mean? People who don't know anything about boy, and I read these books and I'm thinking, well, that's wrong. That isn't, why did they put that down? And, and then I read something, what's wrong? And they've just taken it from another book and they've just, so they're just carrying it all on. And I just thought, and it's when you get talking in between gigs, you know, and it's when we were just doing this show, Turner vs. Strange at the whole truck about the life of Mick Ronson. One of the writers, Gary, he was sort of interviewing him, and I'm sort of telling these little stories in between, you know, maybe having a party in the pub or something like that, and I mentioned this little story, and he said, you want to write a book and put that in a book? I said, no, no, I said, I can't be bothered, you know, I don't really want to write a book, you know, and I said, I never really wanted to write a book, you know. So this went on, this went on, and then the pandemic came, and then the lockdown came, and we couldn't go out, couldn't go anywhere, you know, couldn't even go to a pub for a pint, nothing. So he said, why don't you do it now? Why don't you do it now? You've got some time on your hands, you've got something so I thought. Yeah, okay. Then I said, you're right, and we'll do it. I said, you've been pestering me now for like three years. I said, I said we'll do it. So basically, I just sort of like, because I couldn't even go to his house, so I'd sort of like mm. write some, I'd write the pages down, and, and I just sort of wrote them down as I sort of like, as I say them. And I just sent them on to Gary, who was the, the sort of co-writer. I WhatsApped him or emailed him or whatever. And it just went from there, you know, and then it, and then it just it just carried on from there. And that's the only reason. I think if there wasn't a pandemic, there wouldn't be a book out. You know, there's such a strong connection between Yorkshire, East Yorkshire area and David Bowie, and that comes out even more in the book. All right, yeah, yeah. Well, I say that, you know, there's the people that David had from Hull, you know, Rhodes, Stewie, his bodyguard, you know, even the band... But the connection is how was the first one there. I'm not being big-headed when I say this. It's just mm. how it happened. You know, if I'd have come from Leeds, there'd probably be a lot of people from Leeds there. You know, mm. I started the ball rolling. That, that's all it is, you know. The first song that we played on the podcast was The Rats and Stop and Get a Hold of Myself. So so that was the, the band that you were in with Mick Ronson then. And that was, when was that? 66, 67? Um, about, yeah, about 60, 67 that would be, yeah. Yeah, Stop and Get a Hold of Myself, that song. When I joined The Rats with Mick... There was a sort of rhythm and blues band, you know, and Benny Marshall played mouth organ harmonica, you know. And all the songs are basically 12 bars, guitar-orientated. And I was a big Beatles fan, Harmonies, Hollies, especially the Hollies and the Beatles, you know. And we didn't do anything with harmony or all this. And I remember seeing The Move, and we played with The Move a couple of times, and they used to do all these real good numbers. And and, and some of the numbers I picked, I said, why don't we do that number that The Move does? And The Move, the move were doing covers. Mm. And I remember uh, this stop and get a hold of myself, just heard it. When it stops in the middle and you were this sort of like, ooh, ooh, ah, ah. I just, when, when, there was, when there was doing this live and I thought, I just pricked my ears and I thought, what's that? What's that about? And I thought, well, that's, that's weird and strange, but really good, you know. And I remember going into the dressing room and saying to Roy Wood, I'm, I'm not name dropping now, in the Skyline Ballroom when we played, it was just one big room. There was no, like, individual dressing rooms and then everyone was just, you know, messing in. 
And I said to him, you know, because he was a songwriter, and I said, oh, you know, did you write that song? You know, one with the ooh, ooh, ah? And he said, oh, no. I said, no. I said, um, it's a Gladys Knight and the Pips song. I thought, Gladys Knight and the Pips, you know. And I thought, I think by then they'd only had one one hit. You know, it wasn't, what, just 1967, I think the only hit they'd had them was Take Me In Your Arms and Love Me, you know. So I thought, that didn't sound like a Gladys Knight, Knight thing. So anyway, I looked it up, and it was, and I had to go and order this album, and, and we got it off. And the other songs what we sort of nicked off them was Rock and Roll Star by The Birds, and Hey Grandma by Moby Grape, yeah. which I got the rats to do. I even got them to do Paperback Writer and all with the Beatles thing. That was slung in. Mick must have liked it. It changed because even when he did his last album, he even put his version of Hey Grandma on his album. So, you know, he must have just changed the rats from being a little bit sort of like bluesy and, and uh, what I thought, a little bit boring, you know. You say in the book that Mick was known as, even at that time, as one of the best guitarists in East Yorkshire. Oh, without without yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of guitarists at that time, similar age to Mick and maybe a little bit older. And I, and I think where Mick improved, it's a bit the same with everything. You know, uh, at that time, it, we're just coming out with the Chuck Berry sort of guitars and just leaving the, the shadows and this sort of thing. I mean, everyone as a guitarist learnt on the shadows, didn't they? you know, Hank Marvin. And those that didn't sort of progress, you know, those that didn't get into the Hendrix and the Claptons and the, all this sort of thing, you know, Jeff Beck's. They're just stuck with Chuck Berry solo. Nothing wrong with that, you know. But mm. uh, I mean, like Keith Richards, he never went on to be like a Jeff Beck or a Clapton. He's still got that sort of Chuck Berry thing, but he's very good at what he does. You know, a great, still a great guitarist, but Mick just wanted to progress and, and he wanted to go down the, the other road. And in that first period of the Rats at the start, there wasn't much or any original material. In the book, you talk about the writing of The Rise and Fall of Bernie Cripplestone. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, I always wanted to be, um, write songs, do original songs. I think this stems from the Beatles, you know, when the Beatles, if you look at all their early tracks from the Beatles, when all the other bands like in the 60s, Searches and these sort of things, they was always doing colour versions of American, but the Beatles came across and wrote their own stuff. The band before the Rats was a band called ABC, and I wrote a, a song with that because I couldn't really play guitar at that time, but I would sort of sing the melody and write, write the lyrics. Yeah. And I said, suggested once to Mick, why don't we do some original stuff? You know, we keep doing all this, you know. So one night I picked Mick up and uh, I said, I've got this idea. And I, said, and I told him, I said, but I'm not going to write one of these songs, you know, with Moon and June lyrics, love songs, sloppy thing, you know. And, I, and so it, it's a, basically, it's a song about a coal man that dies, you know. And so Mick came up with a little bit and I sort of sang it to him and he put the chords to it. And, and we came up with the um, Rise and Fall of Bernie Cripplestone. And Bernie Cripplestone, the name... The name where I got that from, it was from the film John Lennon, How I Won the War. And I think he was called Bernard Gripweed. <laughs> so I, I nicked a bit of that, you know, and, and made it Bernie Gripplestone. And the Rise and Fall, I just nicked that from the Rise and Fall of Flingle Bunce, The Shadows. So that's that's where that came from. People say, did um, Bowie print, you know, when he did his yeah. his Rise and Fall bit, uh, Spires and Mars? I don't think it was anything to do with that. You know, I know Bowie nicks bits, but I don't think that was anything to do. I probably never even heard that song before then anyway. There's like a backwards guitar solo yeah. from Mick there. Yeah. Well, that was inspired more by the Beatles thing. You know, songs Tomorrow Never Knows and um, the actual solo on Taxman, it's, it's not by, it's not backwards, but it sounds backwards, you know, if you listen to it. I think, I'm not sure, but I think McCartney ended up playing that song. And what I've read since then is like, George Martin thought it was that good, the solo, what he did. He even put it on the end of the song. And I remember George Harrison saying, well, you know, just to get just to get one of my songs on the album. Yeah, Paul, you play what you like as long as I can have one of my songs on the album. So, so yeah, it, it was it was a backward solo thing. Yes, yeah. so it was inspired from the Revolver album.
said that um, 2nd of April 1969 was your final gig with the Rats. Yeah. Why did you leave? Well, I did leave. I, I got I got sacked. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Personal differences. Well, no, it was, it, well, it was really. It's all in the book, but it's the thing is like we, we was rehearsing over the over the Easter period, you know, and it was like Good Friday, Easter Saturday, Easter Sunday, and I think we even did the Thursday. So when we did it on the Thursday, I played football on like the Saturdays and the Sundays and that, and so they said, oh, we can have the village hall for another two more days. We'd already been rehearsing like all day, like either the Thursday, the Friday, or the Friday. And I said, "Oh no!" I said, "I'm not rehearsing for another two days. I'm playing football." You know what I mean? And so I just said, "They aren't coming." Mm. And I think that upsets some people. So they said, "Oh, fair enough." Then I left it in that. But in the end, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. It certainly did because um, it seems that soon after you went down to London to join up with Mick Wayne. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, you're talking of like basically months after, two or three months after. Yeah, was Mick in Junior's eyes at that time? Was it just being formed? Yeah, Mick was in Junior's eyes. I'd been in. Mick had joined a band in Hull called the Hullabaloos. There was a semi-pro pro band who was picked up by uh, um, the guy called John Chichester Constable, who sort of owns Burton Burton Constable Hall. And they actually played a gig at his wedding or some, some sort of corporate dude. And he liked him and he ended up managing him. And he's sort of like, right, you're going to America, you're going to all dye your hair blonde. And, and they they had sort of like big hits in the States because obviously the States have different charts. Mm. You know, I mean, I think if you have a hit in Texas, you sell more records than you have for number one in England, you know. I joined the Huller Blues. I went for an audition. I didn't know it was um, a little advertisement in the local papers as um, professional drum wanted. And this time Mick Wayne had replaced the singer. The singer had left. So they came back to, to Hull. They wanted a drum aid. The drummer had left, so so I joined. I just played with them for a few, uh, it wasn't very long, a few months, and then that folded up. Nick went back to London, and uh, then he got back in touch with me, as you say, in 1969. The span of time here, April 69, final gig with the Rats, Junior's Eyes, which you were then a part of in, in July 69, right. were then re- recorded with David Bowie. It's just a few months. Yeah, um, I'd only been, I think I'd been down there, I think I joined in June, and I think it was either the back end of June or the beginning of July when we met David, you know. We'd recorded at Trident Studios, and Tony Visconti was our producer. And But Visconti was also producing Mark Bolin and David Boy. Um, I think Mark was more the biggest star at the time, you know, than David. 
And, and I think David had already done one track and he sort of, he sort of said, well, why don't we get Mick Wayne's band in, you know, to do finish the album rather than keep employing a session drummer, a session bass player, et cetera, et cetera. And so we, and that's what we did. So we ended up sort of like um, doing the rest of David's album. And you also say that um, it was in terms of the process, David talked you through the songs and, and didn't play them. But then you've got tracks like Signet Committee, which are nine minutes long. Oh, that's how he worked. That's how David worked. It's, it's like... Um, when I first joined Junior's Eyes, we went we went to sort of like a cottage somewhere, a little farm in Norfolk, and, and did it for a week. I went through all the songs, everything for a week, and then we did the gig. We sort of went there on the Monday, and by the Friday, we did a gig with David. It was like come to the studio, uh, the session booked at whatever time to whatever time, and uh, right then he'd sit on a little high stool at the back. Right, here's a song I want to do, and he'd maybe sing it a couple of times, and he'd say, right, that's it. There was no rehearsals, no going to a studio beforehand. You just hear the song a couple of times. He'd sing it, mm. so it was up to you. You, you got you had to learn when the stops were and where, where to come in, and it was basically up to you what you what sort of like drumming you put in. But I've said this before: if you listen to that album, David's that, that album to get the tempos, I think he starts nearly everyone on guitar on his twelve string. He always David brings everything in. There's no like right we're straight in. It always seems to start with with the guitars, you know. So and then we just sort of followed him and that's it. And then we'd maybe do it and he'd say, we'd maybe run through it with him. And then maybe a couple of times and he'd say, right, shall we have to do a take then? Okay, then we'll go for a take. Same again. One or two times. That'll do. <laughs> it's incredible, really. You mentioned Signet Committee and the length, but I think it was it's about a minute before the drums come in and it's it's his 12th right, string yeah. at the start. Yeah, very long song. It's funny because when people like that song, you just mentioned the Signet Committee. Because after a while, you know, after David did all his Ziggy bit and all that sort of thing, and, and people got to know that. I never used to publicise that I was with Boy. People said, oh, you didn't tell me you played with David Boy, you know. And they'd say to me, what songs were you in then, John? What song did you play? And I'd say, you know, I'd say, I played in all the songs that nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I think now Signature Committee has, has become like, I don't know, a lot of people are sort of like giving that a bit more, you know, a bit more clout than what, what, what I thought it deserved, you know. I gave them life, I gave them all 
had a break from David's album, you actually recorded a single with Junior's Eyes, Star Child? Star Child, yeah. Another Mick Wayne song. Mick, Mick with the same thing. He'd say, I wrote, I wrote this real nice song, which it was a real nice song, you know, um, a quite a slowy song. Rick Waitman, I remember Rick Waitman came and he played Melaton in it. 
And I always remember when Rick Waitman came in, apparently Rick, I think Rick's, Rick Waitman's first session for Tony Visconti, Tony Visconti got Rick in. And I think his first session he ever did, uh, I'm not really sure on this, but I, but I think it was Space Oddity. Right. And then the second one he ever did was during his Dark Star Child. And I remember him coming in, he'd sit in the studio, and he had he always used to come in with his, because uh, he, he did a couple, he was coming in, he had a red velvet jacket on and a black polo neck sweater. And we were all the band in the console upstairs, and Rick was just this guy who nobody knew, and, and we'd be like, ah, Rick, yeah, he's, he's like a nobody. You know, nobody really took much notice of him, and look what he went on to become. It was at Trident again, wasn't it? Trident again, yeah. Most of it was done at Trident. song didn't get in the charts, unfortunately. No, I mean, it got, at that time, it was Radio Luxembourg, and it got a few players on Radio Luxembourg, and, and as Grom Kelly, our singer, said, at the same time, there was that, um, from the musical, hey, you know, good morning, star shined. And Grom said... I'm sure people have got it mixed up when they've heard our song and, and they've looked in the charts. No, it's it's Good Morning Starshine. So they might have wanted Star Child, but they've gone in and they've given them Star, you know, Starshine or whatever. And Grom says, I'm sure that was, we could have sold more copies if that wasn't out at the same time. i 
assume over the summer you were playing gigs with Junior's Eyes, but by October, period after the recording of, of the uh, David Bowie album, mm. he got you guys back again for, for some uh, sessions. So we got the, the Dave Lee Travis show from uh, October and, and the track Let Me Sleep Beside You. Yeah, we did. I mean, David then, I think he realised then he couldn't do these songs without a band behind him. Because, of course, we knew all the songs and we did them. So it seemed just seemed obvious to get the people that did it with him to come and do it live with him. You know, we ended up doing some gigs with him as well. You know, but it used to be pre-hype, you know, so I did some gigs with, with David uh, as Junior's Eyes. Yeah, and, and and them shows, yeah. So, like, it was just basically the same lineup. what I'd recorded the album in Trident, and, and we went and did the um, BBC shows. That period as well, you, you moved to Haddon Hall? Yeah, yeah. My roommate, we was living down St Helens Gardens, just off Labrick Grove. In the house was uh, Tim Renick, he had a room upstairs, and Honk, the bass player, John Lodge, he had a room upstairs. I was rooming downstairs with Roger the Roadie and just around the corner, basically on Labrick Road, Mick Wayne lived with his partner. It was one night, Roger said, let's go and see Boy, let's go and see Boy, shall we, you know, and so we were, we used to go down because we got to know him, I got to know him real well. I just seemed to click with him, you know, when you, you're in certain bands and mm. I mean, I got on well with all of Junie's eyes, don't get me wrong, and I got on with all with the rats, but there, sometimes there's certain people, in fact, maybe with the rats, you know, um, got on well with Benny and Mick. But maybe Jeff Appleby, the bass player, who ended up working with me, maybe got more friendly with Jeff than the other two. And same with Bowie, I got really friendly with David. You know, he, and I think he took to me, I took to him. Mm. Got very similar sense of humour. People don't know David Bowie's got a really, really good dry sense of humour. Anybody who's listening to this or knows him will know exactly what I mean. And so, yeah, so we went to Aden Hall and he, and he just sort of, and he, he hadn't been in there long and, he, and we told him about how flat where he was and what was paying for it. And he just says, do you want to move in here with us? So we did a moonlight flick. <laughs> from St. Helens Gardens, Roger and myself, and we moved in with David in Daphne Hall and Angie. And also Tony Visconti and his girlfriend there at the time, Liz Hartley, they were staying, they had a room in there. You were on mattresses on the floor? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, we wasn't, um, we wasn't in any beds or anything. Same same as wherever we've gone, whenever I stayed in London, it was always a mattress on the floor. You know, I remember when I first joined Junior's Eyes and Roger says to me, the Brody, right, he said, we're going to this second hand shop and um, we're going to get you a cheap mattress. <laughs> And you're, this is going to be your bed. I mean, nowadays, you'd never go and buy a second-hand mattress, would you? You know where it's come from. But then, OK, then, yeah, I got this mattress and um, everything went, went to Haddon Hall. There's some things where people say, Tony Visconti, he called it the creepy gallery. Haddon Hall was a great big sort of old Victorian building and David had all the, all the downstairs. And as you sort of went into the sort of like hallway, staircase went up the middle and it went right round the top. You, you could go right or left and you'd come back onto yourself. And it had doors up there, but there was all boarded over. So, you know, there was different flats, so you couldn't get in. There was no handles on them. It was just boarded over with plywood or something. And it says that Mick and Woody and Trevor, I think, they all ended up sleeping in on what Tony called the creepy gallery. But when all the time I was there, I was actually in what was David's then, what would be his, his living room. Uh, and I think I think basically when I'd gone, he just wanted his rooms back, and I think he moved all them up there because he wanted a bit more space. And you uh, describe it in the book how he used to play pranks and uh, just have a laugh, and there was water Oh, yeah, yeah, water pistol fight, that was one thing. I, I think Tony Visconti came in one day with a load of water pistols. He, he'd come in because Tony would go to work in, in the daytime, only scooter into town. He'd produce, you know, writing scores and what have you. And, and he'd always come back, sometimes he came back with a load of darts and a dartboard, you know, because we'd been into the Three Tons pub and I'd been playing darts and Tony had never really played darts. So I said, well, let's get some darts out because before I went up there, I was in a dart team and I, I was a decent dart player. And there was a maze how, how I could play darts because they'd never even thrown a dart, you see. So Tony got that and he got the darts. But the water pistols, he came back with these water pistols. I always remember this. And so we filled up and we're chasing around the room with these water pistols. 
And I remember boys after me and he squirted me in it. And I went into the kitchen and there was a fair liquid bottle on it. So I emptied it all out, make sure what, you know, emptied it all out, what bit was left. And I filled it with water. And he's chasing me around and I sort of got under the table and he said, oh, I've got you, I've got And he squirted it all in my face like, and I couldn't move. And then I just got this water bit on, boom, drenched him. But he loved all that. So, I mean, you know, that, and he, he didn't just laugh in his head off. That's the sort of things we used to do. the dust of you thrown off your shoulder now the years of fretting days as lie behind you don't return to fields of green where rainbow secrets were told face your racket all with all the toys and thanks and peace I will show you games where the winner Lock away your childhood and throw away the key For now the streets and city sounds will burn your eyes as coals We shall drink the oldest wine and velvet skies will linger Child, you're a woman now, your heart and soul are free I will hold a lighted lamp and we shall walk So next we have Conversation Piece, which was the B-side to The Prettiest Star here. Right. And that's another track that you were on. You do, I don't think you were on the A-side, The Prettiest Star. No, uh, Tony asked us to do the A-side, Prettiest Star. Um, we had a, a gig with Junior's Eyes in Scotland or someone where you couldn't do it. And so I said, oh, no, we're playing. You know, we're playing at that time. 
So, so I, well, I couldn't do it, but I was asked to play on the Pretty Star, but I couldn't do it. But the conversation piece was actually recorded when we did the album, and I think, uh, so I've been told that there wasn't enough room to put it on, so it was put onto the B-side of that. Yeah. I remember drumming that and all that song, and uh, as a drummer, uh, anybody who's learned to play drums, when you first start to play drums, will go back to Bobby Elliott, the Hollies, one of my idols. Ah. Great technical drummer. And when you start off, when you want to be a drummer, I suppose it's the same with guitar players and what have you. You want to learn every fill. You, every time there's a gap, you want to put a fill in. You want to put... As you get a bit older, as a drummer's point of view, it's sort of like, no, you don't have to fill that in. It's just about keeping the right time all the time, not slowing down, not speeding up. Less is more, in other words. And I remember on con- conversation place and David the same, just played, and I thought, yeah, this doesn't need any fills or anything. It just needs to be the tempo all the way through, nice and quiet, and, and that's what I do. And when I hear that now, I'm thinking... I'm glad mm. I did that, you know, and even people have come up to me and said, oh, yeah, John, the drum, and I said, yeah, there's nothing in it. It's just really, if, it, if a young drummer was listening to that, I would say it's boring, but it's just what it needed. I took this walk to ease my mind Find out what's gnawing at me Wouldn't think to look at me That I spent a lot of time in education It all seems so long ago I'm a thinker, not a talker I've no one to talk to anyway I can't see the road for the rain in my eyes Ah, ah, ah. I live above the grocer's store Owned by an Austrian He often calls me down to eat And he jokes about his broken English Tries to be a friend to me But for all my years of reading conversation I stand without a word to say I can't see the bridge For the rain in my Above the grocer's door Investigates my face so rudely And my essays lying scattered on the floor Fulfill their needs just by being there And my hands shake, my head hurts My voice sticks inside my throat I'm invisible and dumb And no one will recall me And I can't see the water for the tears in my eyes. 
this period, early 1970, was Junior's eyes ending around the time that uh, David was ultimately forming hype? Yeah, I thought I was coming home. I always remember we, we was doing a gig. I remember the gig and all because my girlfriend at the time and my wife Angela, it was a charade club at Rotherham. What a memory, you see. And, hmm. and she come to see it, and the reason I can remember it because she'd, as they arrived and they'd driven from the hull and they got to Rotherham and, and they'd missed it. It was that late and held up. And so as they arrived to come to see us, we're packing the gear in the van to come home. <laughs> so it was basically drive all the way there and we had to go all the way back home. But Tim Rennick said to me on that night, he said, oh, John Visconti wants to see you. He said, um, he wants to see you. You know, can you go and see him tomorrow? And I thought it was going to be another uh, session. I've done odd little sessions, you know, and I thought it could be another session. So I went down to um, the little office on Oxford Street and, and I think Tony was on the phone at the time, and he was talking to David. He said, hi, Johnny. He said, um, David's forming a band. He wants you to be his drummer. What? And he's me thinking, I'm coming back to all. Oh, you know, this is when Junior's eyes finished. And, he's, and he said, yeah. So I said, oh, put him on, will you? Put him on. So I, hi, David. You know, you do? yeah. Is that right? And he, and he said, yeah. He said, will you be my drummer? I said, oh, of course I will, you know. And I, and I, I remember saying this to him, and I remember saying, you know, all the drummers in London, you know, the, you've got your Rainsley Dunbars and brilliant drummers like this. You know, why do you want me? He's actually aware of something like, well, he said, I, I like your drumming and I like you as a person. And that's what I mean. It's not all just about your, your technical ability. It's how people get on with each other. For those hype gigs, you used to dress up when you were Cowboy Man? Cowboy Man, yeah. I don't know where that come from. Cowboy Man, it's um, <laughs> it's a lot actually to do with that was Angie, Angie uh, David's wife, Angie, Angie Bowie. And, and Liz Hartley, they, they sort of made these costumes. Visconti was hype man, a bit like a, a Superman with a H on his front and and Mick was gangster man. It's quoted that I remember Angie's saying in one of the things, she said, Oh yeah, she said, um, we went out and we bought Mick this new gold army suit. No, that didn't happen. <laughs> the suit is what David it was one of David's suits. In fact there's some photos you can see David's wearing the same suit as what Mick's got on. So there's Visconti in that and, and then David's got all these he was rainbow man and he's like a little silver jacket and knee length, but he's got Lorex tights on. And I was cowboy man, cowboy art. Cowboy waistcoat. They'd sewn some frills on my shirt. And the frills basically was like, you know when you get these old-fashioned lampshades with the frills on the bottom? That's what there was. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there wasn't really even really yeah. good. That's how cheap it was, you know. I remember um, some quote in some book, Peter Gabriel said, um, they was on the bill, and he said, um, yeah, Genesis, pre-Phil Collins. And he, Peter Gabriel said, yeah, I said, I remember seeing him. He said, they looked, they looked like they'd all gone to the wardrobe department and just pulled anything out of the cupboard. And I thought, yeah, he's put on there. <laughs> But some people say that, you know, those early hype gigs were the the birth of glam rock and uh, it said that... Well, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that was quoted. It was it was quoted as the, the very first glam glam rock gig, you know. Um, I mean, even Boy said this, didn't it? Because he, David, had the makeup on all this thing. And there is a photo out there somewhere, and I keep saying it, but nobody can find it. And Ray Stevenson, who was giving give me some photos yeah. for my book, and he, I think he's took this photo, and there's one of Mark Boland, and he's leant right up on the stage, I remember seeing it. And he's got his arms and his shoulder on the stage, and he's got this little Woolworths, like a, a breastplate, you know, what you could buy. It's made of plastic, but it looks, it's supposed to look like metal. And he's looking right up at Bowie, and he's looking right, and you can see, so he, it's basically nearly taken through Bowie's legs. And he's looking right up at Bowie, and he's, the expression on his face, and, and I've always said this to other people, and he's sort of looking at him, and he's thinking, yeah, I'm going to have a bit of that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So when they saw who, who did the, the glam rock thing first, Mark or David, I think David started it, but Mark maybe took it to another level, you know. Well, you were playing around February. I think it was October when Ride the White Swan was uh, released, which which kind of re- really kicked that off. So you could see how over the summer Mark was uh, developing that sound and look. 
Well, six months before that, I did a session with Mark, oh. another one of his concerts, with Matt Bowen, and then, what was the drum? I think John Perrigan, was, was, he played congas, didn't he, what have you? Oh. And he couldn't play drums at the time, he just used to play congas. And Matt wanted to release a single, but under a different name, you know, he wanted to be, he wanted to have a hit single, but he didn't want to, because he was underground, he didn't want to sort of sell out. <laughs> and it was, it was called Oh Baby, and it was released as Dip Cochran and the Ewigs. I think Mick Ronson actually came, you know, I think Tim Rennick played, except right. was on it, and I think, I'm not sure whether Rick Waitman was on it at all, but um, definitely Mark, so, in other words, he wanted he wanted a hit record, but he didn't want to sort of like sell out from his, his underground sort of gigs. Yeah. And that was just before um, Radawax won, and maybe about six, seven months or something like that. Oh baby, oh baby, oh baby baby, oh baby baby. mentioned in the book somehow has been cut out and I don't know why but it was Dylan Jones and Dylan Jones had said in his book he said and he mentioned this kid when we all dressed up and he says yeah and John Cambridge is dressed as a pirate complete with eye patch black eye patch and this is what I'm thinking I'm thinking, how do they how the heck did they get these things wrong you know how did they get to get this? so in my book and the cut this bow I said can you imagine Johnny Depp 
filming the Pirates of Caribbean, and he's he's going to walk on set, and he walks on set instead of being dressed in all his pirate gear, we're just reversing it now, and he comes on dressed as a cowboy, and the sort of director says to him, Johnny, what what are you doing dressed dressed as a cowboy? You're supposed to be a pirate, and he says to the director, Yeah, but who's going to know the difference? And the and the director says, Yeah, you're right. Action. <laughs> now, John, your role in rock history was absolutely set because you had the you know a pivotal role of linking David up with Mick Ronson, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, the story with that was when I I joined the hype and David formed Hype and Armour Adam Hall, and uh, they'd already asked Tim Rennick would he be the the guitarist, but t- Tim turned it down because he was going to join um he would join another band in America, Terry Reid's Fantasia, and he was going to join them, and even in fact. At the time, Tim said, oh, I think Terry Reid wants a drummer. Do you fancy that? You know, I said, oh, no, you know, I'm, I'm already w- with Boy. So we sat in the room, my sort of room, I said the living room where I, I was, and, and there's David and Visconti just talking together, and I'm just sat in the room, like, reading the paper or something, you know. And I, I hear them both going through these names, and they're sort of saying, well, there's so-and-so, so-and-so, and we could get in. Where about so-and-so? And the, I mean, these names are mentioned, I mentioned, I don't know, probably all session, really good guitarists. So I just said, oh, you, you need a guitarist. And and, I was, and they said, yeah, we've been going through some names. I said, well, I, I've got a friend in, in, in Hull who was, you know, he's a decent guitarist, Mick Ronson. And they went, didn't take no notice whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, okay, John, yeah, you know. I said, no, he's a good guitarist. And looking back now, you can understand they're probably thinking, you know, well, well some guitarist in Hull, if he was any good, we'd know where he's now anyway, wouldn't we? You know, how John's going to go back there and bring someone with a cheap guitar, maybe, you know, he's uh, a semi-pro musician in the semi-pro band no 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 so I said no he's a good guy. you know so I kept pestering him pestering him and I said look I'm going back home to Hull because every time we had a few or four days in between recording or gigging with David I'd just get the train back to Hull and bless me daddy give me the train fare to come back so when I came back I thought I'll go and ask Mick you know and I knew where he was working he was gardener on doing this sort of like looking after the council football pitches and the council schools and listening and I went to, they used to have a little hut, and I went to the little hut where they used to have up, keep all the lawnmowers and everything, and his friend Trevor, and I said, oh, where's Mick working? And he told me where it was, Jarvis School, now Andrew Marvel School. And I remember going around there and parked my car. Now it's all fenced off, you can't get in there, it's real security, you've got to go in there and get a badge and all this sort of thing. But then it was just wide open. And But the, the thing is, the fields are still there. We did we recreated this scene for Gary Kemp on his passions thing. And the field is still there. And I remember seeing Mick in the distance and he was creosote in the field. You know, you couldn't mistake Mick with his blonde hair. It was something about that, maybe half past 10 in the morning, really quiet. And I see Mick in the corner and I'm rushing and I'm shouting, Mick, Mick. And he looks up and I'm getting closer and closer. Oh, now then, Mick. So now then, Johnny said, I thought you was in London with you. And he said, I said, yeah, I am, I am. I said, but he's a guitarist. You know, he's performing this new band, the hype band. So he wants to get... I said, you know, you probably, you fancy doing it. And he stopped to talk to me, and as soon as I said that, no, 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 and he just carried on, no, there's no way. I mean, I didn't know at the time Mick had already been down two or three years earlier with, with the band, and I think The Voice, and he'd got ripped off in London. Even I didn't know that. He never mentioned this one with the rats, so I didn't know Mick had already been down there, and, and he'd sort of, like, been ripped off and he'd failed. Mm. So I couldn't understand his reaction, you see. So he's saying, um, no, no, I'm not going down there, and he just carried on, something that you know, oh, Mick, come on, you've got to come, you know, you know you've got to come, you know, and then he won't, he won't have it. So I'm thinking, well, I've been down there pestering Boy in Visconti to to bring him up there, and they say, no, they aren't bothered. And I've come down here to to finally get Mick, and he's not bothered. You know what I mean? So I'm thinking, I'm a waste of my time here. Anyway, I persevered, and I said, listen, Mick, I said, we're playing at the Marquee Club. It's 
Junior's Eyes, very last gig, and we're supporting Bowie's new band, The Hype, and I'll be playing with both bands. Why don't you come down? I'll pick you up. Just bring your guitar. You can uh, come down. As I said in my book, I think when you mentioned the marquee, you know, and it's like a prestigious gig for like, if you live up north, a bit like the cabin in, in Liverpool, you know. Mm. And so Mick thought, well, yeah, all right then. I said, come down, you know, just come stay the night and you come back home. And so he came down, so I him, he came down. And I remember with the marquee and we did, we did the gig and we got there about, I don't know, tea time or something. And you could even park your car on the back of there then. I suppose you couldn't now, you know. And so I get in and I said, right, I'm just going to go and set my, my drums up. Roger the road, he was bringing the gear in. David wasn't there at the time. So I'm bringing the gear in. And so Mick just sat down. And remember, the club's, it's empty. The, the audience hadn't come in yet. So Mick's just sort of sat at a table. And then, and then as it starts and the club starts to sort of fill up, we go on first and do our bit. And I think, um, I think, oh, well, there's another band on and all. Didn't really get to see Mick and, until sort of like we, we did our bit. And then when we finished... So so Mick hadn't really met David then. Right. So when we finished and the club sort of empty and there's hardly anybody in and I'm sort of checking the gear down and Mick sort of comes up to the stage and I just said to David, oh, I said, David, this is that my friend I was telling you about, you know, Mick Ronson, you know, telling you about. I don't think David even knew I'd brought him. So I said, oh, yeah. So David just said, oh, pleased to meet you. Never really said much at that time. Just pleased to meet you. So we all went back to Haddon Hall. Obviously, Mick's going to stay the night and he's sort of slept on the mattress or on the floor, floor with us and that. But when we got back there, we had our usual cup of tea and a bit of toast and marmite on toast and, and there's always a few guitars lying about there's always David's 12 string hanging about and they just started picking up the guitars and they started playing a bit you know for about an hour you know and, Mick and, and then David got to know him and we went to bed and next morning they, they sort of carried on from where they'd left off and then David just said to him he said look he said I'm, I'm doing the John Peel show in a couple of days you fancy doing it so Mick says yeah yeah okay then and so that's when we did it and that, that show what's now on his width of a circus album, uh, circle album, it was the first gig what Mick did because it was a live audience there, and it was his first recording of it, and it went on from there. Just within a couple of days, uh, Mick had known David then. That's right, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you listen to the thing now, I mean, um, there's some little cock ups. I think that, uh, one example. I think when we do Janine and we all stop and Mick's still playing the riff, the riff <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's, it's which is good because it's a bit raw, but it's it's like. And it's getting a bit heavy now because mixing, you know. Um, you can see he's, he's starting to change. David is starting to change from his from his little forky forky thing to uh, getting a little bit heavier. And the width of a circle track itself actually showed that direction that David would follow in terms of that hard sound. Yeah, that was probably the first song, you know, what really sort of turned him. You know, what, what really turned the sound. Yeah, that was Mick though. I mean, David didn't sort of say to Mick, "Can you play these real heavy chords on this?" Or can you? Mick just did it. As you say, when when you when you're learning and when we was learning his album, he would just play the song and then he left it up to you. You do what you want to do, feel free. And so I'm sure Mick just sort of the right. I think I will put this in here, and Mick made it like that. On this next number, in addition to John Cambridge on drums and Tony Visconti on bass, and of course David on guitar, we have uh, Mick Ronson who'll be playing lead guitar, who's recorded on. Uh, Michael Chapman LPs, those of you who heard Michael Chapman LPs, one of my favourite singers. And the uh, first thing that the full band will be doing is called The Width of Circle.
channel is called the Width of Circle. Are you going to be doing gigs with this band? <laughs> well, looking at them, no. <laughs> yes, we're going to do some gigs. Are we, Michael? Michael doesn't really know. He's just come down from Hull, and uh, I met him for the first time about two days ago through John, the drummer, who's worked with me once. I see, but you, you are planning to go on the road, as it were. Yes, yes, very shortly. So now we have David again and Memory of a Free Festival Part 1, which was the uh, single version of that, and there seems to be some misconceptions in terms of who actually played on that track. Well, the first version was, was on the album. Yeah. Was on the, we, we did it on the album, you know. And then uh, when Mick had joined, Visconti had this, this idea of, like, because if you, if you listen to the first version, the drums come in and out and in and out, a bit like signature committee, you know, that sort of thing. But on the second version, it's all the way through. Visconti said, right, I want you to play all the way through on this sort of thing. That was Mick's first recording at Trident, you know. I remember coming back and and I'd done that track and I remember reading it and so and so and so and it said, oh, Woody Woodman, she's playing drums on. And I thought, and I got the single because you had to go and order it. I mean, it wasn't that many. I had to go and order it when I came back to Hull. And, and I listened to it and I thought, well, that sounds like me, you know, because I remember Visconti saying, you like the beginning because if you listen to it, we all come in at different times, the drums, the bass, the guitar and everything. And I thought, well, unless Woody's copied it exactly and I also it was me, you know. And so when we played at the um, Mick Ronson Memorial, not Hammersmith. We did the Ice Arena in Hull about two years after that one, two or three, or maybe two or three years after that one. And we're in this sort of like backstage bar mm. and Kevin Carnes there with us. And I went up to Woody. So Woody, I said, did you ever play Go and Re-Record Memory Free Festival? And um, Woody said, no. He said, um, I maybe only played it once live. He said, never ever didn't record it again. And I said to Kevin Carnes, there you are, Kevin, you've got the proof now. It's been put right since then. But it's so annoying when you've done something and, and you don't get the credit for it, you know what I mean? It's not as though it's brilliant drumming, it's just like, yeah, I played a fast track.
you started recording with David again, but you were you were ultimately pushed out. Yeah, yeah. We did a bit of research on the. I mean, I didn't know that there's things I've learned. Gary was Gary was sort of buying every book, every book what came out and and doing it. And he said, "Did you know this happened, John?" Because usually, I'd, mm. if I help someone write a book, I basically I just read the bit I was in, and that was it. I just see if they got it right. And so, like he said, have you seen this? You know, and there was things in like there was one bit in like um, I mean I won't go into depth, mm. but there's one bit in when in Woody's book, and he said, have you seen this bit? And it was a bit like um, Woody say something like, I was real, you know, down when Mick said he's he's going to join and leave the band. He said me and Mick were like brothers, and then he says um, something like Mick had turned on to, to Woody and says, don't worry, Woody said we'll sort some out. And, I, and I'm thinking, well, why would you say we'll sort something out? You would say, don't worry, Woody, I'll keep in touch. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you? you wouldn't say we'll sort. You wouldn't say we'll sort. So like, I think, well, why would you say that? So you know, you, you, if you look at the book, you can read between the lines. And, and um, but as I said, I didn't know this until what the last year or so, finding all these things out. Been proven in terms of your drumming, and it, it could have just been um, a twist of fate with Mick joining and then potentially wanting Woody. Yeah, but I think that was maybe one one of you know. I mean, I wouldn't have minded it. it the annoying thing is, at the time when I came back, it's like um, you wouldn't have minded if it had got Ainsley Dunbar, you know, or some or something like that, or you know. But, but when you get when they've got someone who's come all the way back to Hull, you know, and, I, and I'm thinking, well, if I, if someone had taken me down there and got me as a drummer, if the roles were reversed and they'd have said to me, look, we want to get rid of Mick, do you know, a guitarist, I would have said, oh no, wait a minute. And if I bring a guitarist from Hull, it's obvious what's happened there. No, you'll get someone. I don't want to, you know, and I couldn't have done that. But we're all different, aren't we? You know what I mean? So I don't bear no grudge now, you know, to say only for the, that was 50 years ago longer, you know. So it, it just, I, I never learnt these things until, you know, until like, as you say, maybe last year. And you were only just about 20 at the time. Yeah, I was. I was 20, yeah. Yeah, so I'm still only basically, I mean, five years before that, I was still at school. <laughs> Not only were you out of the band, but you, yeah. you decided to leave Haddon Hall, understandably, and then go back to Hull. Yeah, straight away the next day. I just came back home, and it's all in the book. It's, it's better put in the book. It, it's um, the next day. I, you know, I just just came home, and and that was it. And carried on with life, as you say. It was about twenty years before you met David again. Yeah, yeah, I met him again. Um, when I said I'm, I'm coming home, and David David said to me, you know, when the, when he says they're getting someone else in, he said, "Oh, John, you can stay, you can stay long. You don't have to go now." And I said, "No, no, I'll go, to, I'll go tomorrow. You know, I'll go, I'll, I'll leave tomorrow." And I thought I've no problem when to get home. Mm. You know, and my car was there. Luckily, I'd come in my car, so I asked him, "Can you lend me a fiver to get home?" And he said, "Yeah, I'll lend you a fiver." You know, and Visconti says, um, "I just done some sessions actually. Had a, it could have been the member of the free festival session, don't know." So this concert, oh, don't worry, Johnny. He said, well, what we'll do is we'll take you the, the five pound out because five pound was what there was. I think our rent was about five pound a week then. He said, we'll take the money out with session fees, and I said, fair enough then. So when the actual session fee about I don't know three weeks or a month later, and I, and I got the letter from this a real nice handwritten letter, which is in the book and everything, and there's a bit in it where Tony says. As you can see, John, that it's a check, and the check was made out to you, so we couldn't take the money out. But David's a bit uptight for bread at the moment, so can you let him have that fiver back? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you know, so I've got a letter saying, you know, David Boy, what's he worth now? I mean, I just saw on telly lately he's sold all his art collection for about forty million, I think. Wow. And I've got a letter saying, can I have that fiver back? <laughs> <laughs> Mick sadly left us too soon, and you were. Uh... In a reformed Rats in '94 for the Mick 
Ronson Memorial concert and uh, w- one of the tracks that you played was I Feel Free, which was one of the tracks that you'd originally played in the Rats. No, we never we never actually played that in the Rats. That's another thing. Oh. We, the only time we played I Feel Free, we, we used to do a lot of cream numbers, but we never did that. The only time we played I Feel Free was when we did it at Hammersmith. Right. And the line-up then was uh, Tony Visconti came on stage and he played second guitar with Chad Cheeseman on lead guitar. Uh, John Bentley, who was in Squeeze, he played bass. Myself and Benny Marshall. And we just learned that number because we thought it's like, it's a cream number, it's a sort of number, we'd, but we never actually played our feel free in the Rats. Well, not while I was with them, we didn't anyway. <laughs> ah, because I think David did a, a cover of that song at one point, so yeah. maybe that was one of the factors in there. Could have been, yeah. We also did It Ain't Easy, which David did and all, so um, yeah. that could have been. <laughs>
a few years after um, the memorial concert, you actually uh, went to New York to David's 50th birthday party? Yeah. Actually, I got a letter. Well, well, it wasn't a letter. It was like a, a cardboard box come from a FedEx van pulled outside of our, our house, you know, and you don't get any where I lived at the time in Beverly. You, you don't get FedEx, you know, it's, it's either Royal Mail or, you know, not FedEx. We're talking now, what, what, when was it? 1997. Hmm. I've got this cardboard box, you know, it's, it was about a foot square by about two or three inches thick. And then, it's, and then I looked on the front, it's from New York. And I thought, well, the only person I know is from New York. I remember saying to Angela, my wife, I suppose, someone sent me an empty box from New York. <laughs> and she said, well, open it, open it. And so as I opened it, it was a letter from Imam. And she was basically saying, and this letter is also in the book, and we had to get a permission to put it in, which blessings she gave us. And she's sort of saying, what do you give David for his 50th birthday? And he's writing it, he's got everything, you know, you can't give him a new guitar, or he's got everything. So she said, what I'm having done, she said, I'm, I'm having a book done of all his friends and people he knew, just a one-off for him printing. She said, I want you to write it out, I don't want you to print it, I want you to write it, and it's going to be made into the pages. And any photos, and there's a photo of uh, me and David when we've been playing football, in the back, they are playing football with David at the back of Haddon, Haddon Hall. And, and, and we sort of stood on the ball, you know, and you get these footballers with a foot on the ball looking, you know, all nine, 1894 footballers. Mm. It's that sort of pose. That's also in the book. And no, I don't think a lot of people have seen that photo. So um, I sent this and I sent it back. And she sort of said, you know, keep this secret. We don't want anybody to know it's going to be a secret for Dave and his 50th. Summer. And then about two weeks later, I remember me and Angela were sort of going on Morris and something. And I'm just wondering, I wonder if he's having a party. And uh, yeah, there's a thing. So anyway, then we get an invite for the party. And I'm thinking, oh, great. I'm thinking it's going to be in London or somewhere. New York at the time, I think I was out of work. I was back plastering in, in the building sites. And I couldn't afford to go. And I remember I remember the office ringing me up. Are you coming? To? I said, no, I'm sorry, I can't. You know, I didn't say I, I, I couldn't afford it. You know what I mean? When I just said, I can't come. Mm. But um, some friends of ours, they said, well, look, we lend you the money to go, John. So, um, well, the two couples... Let us five hundred. They let us five hundred pound each, which we worked off with. You know, I was working then for for this, and you know, I worked that off. And Angela was working at this nursery, and she worked it off. So we went to his fiftieth um, in New York, and there's some real nice photos from there, which nobody's seen. Which were, in fact, the front cover that was taken at New York. That was his fiftieth. Was it Eman who who took you over to David? Yeah, yeah, real story because it, it was a really weird. You know, we saw him at the. It was at Madison Square Garden. He was playing there. And Andrew and I left early. We thought, I wonder if it's going to be a surprise and we'll better get to this place early, you know. So we left. I missed his last two numbers. And we got there and we were the first ones there. And there's a guy outside, there's a police car outside with his light flashing. And mm. and I remember taking, I remember taking my, my invitation, which is, um, a, David had done a self-portrait of himself with his Aladdin saying, stripe on. This is also in the book, <laughs> you know. Mm. And so I, I thought, I want to keep this in pristine condition, you know. So I went to the, I had it in my sort of inside pocket, nice and neat, still in the envelope. And there's a guy there, he's on the door. He said, yeah, and he said, yeah, buddy. I said, oh, I've got an invitation to come to David, you know. And I pulled the invitation out, and he didn't even look at it. He said, hey, what's your name, buddy? Uh, I said, it's John Cambridge. And he went, yeah, you're on the list, you can go in. Mm. And I thought, oh, I've brought this invitation, man. I wanted to keep it, now I've got to look after it, with, you know what I mean? Because I didn't need to bring it, really. I would have just left it. But as it happened, because I'd taken it there, I got David to sign it. So that was nice. Oh, and one of the one of the photos, which is in the book, which is a good one. George Under was there. You know, George is the guy who hit yeah. who, who, who hit David and did, gave him his odd color eyes. And I've got to know George through through like the Hammersmith, and when we and even when I saw David in two thousand and three at the Hammersmith, I met George there and, and his wife and his son, you know, for a few parts beforehand. And and so George was at his fiftieth, 
so Andrew, she's taking these photos, and so I went over to George and I said, "Can you would you have a photo of me and George?" So there's me and George, and we stood up, and who comes and photo bombs us? Right, jumps right in front, but boy, hmm. so even that's a real good one. I'm, you know, David, can you get out the bloody way? I'm trying to get a photo of me and George. You know what I mean? But he's there with a great big giggle on his face. You know what I mean? So there's there's some nice photos. What? what people what I've seen before. So our final track today, John, is uh, Ian Hunter and the entire cast, and I think you were on stage there mm. of the uh, the Mick Ronson Memorial Concert in 94 and all the young dudes, but there's, uh, there's a great story involved with that, isn't there? Oh, yeah. Um, all the ones like Benny and Benny, they sing out with the rats, they all want to be at the front, you know what I mean? And when, when, well, they're all at the front and Benny's there singing with, you know, Ian Hunter and all, you know, and Joe Elliott and all the flipping. And I thought, I'm not going to be, you know, I thought, I'm going to be, at the, I don't want to be, I'm always at the back, and the drummer's at the back out there, so I didn't want to hug the line, mate. Just looking off stage, and Jeff Appleby, Jeff's had a brain tumour. Uh, oh, he's had it now, I don't know, over 20 years, poor old Jeff. And Jeff, he's like, you can have it torture, you can have it response but you can hear, if you talk to him, he understands everything he's saying, but he can't reply back, and sometimes it frustrates him, and he gets real mad, cause he, and so he was in a wheelchair, and, and Jeff was on stage at the side, looking across the seat, not, you know, people couldn't see him, he was, he was backstage looking across at the side, and, I, and, and his wife, Moira, was behind him, just like holding, holding the wheelchair, and I just thought for a second, I thought, bloody hell, what's Jeff doing there? So just on my own, I thought, right, I ran off stage, I said to Moira, give him here, and I just bowled him right to the front, right next to where Ian Hunter was singing this, all the young dudes, and I just pushed him right next to it, right in the middle of the stage, right in front, next, and there's a photo, actually, and you can see Jeff's there, and I remember Ian singing, he was going, oh, there you are. And I was probably, oh, there you are. Hey, Jeff. <laughs> you know, I just, you know, <laughs> all right, Jeff. You know what I mean? And then he carried on singing. And then I just went to the back again. And I just thought, yeah, and, you know, I'm just, I'm just glad I did that for for Jeff, you know, because he should have been there, really, you know, if he, you know, mm. he should have been in, in, in that crowd. Jeff would have been playing with the rats if he could have done it. Yeah. He'd have been playing rather, you know. And I just thought well, later on, bye, if I missed that by another couple of minutes, he'd have gone. So this seems to be a, a really big year for you because. Not only is is your book out imminently, the width of a circle collection has seen much more of the recordings that that you did with David come out and and official album really, and also making corrections, you know, to show where you've played. So that that must be a good feeling. Well, it was a real buzz, you know. What I mean, it, it's like um, for fifty years I should have got a gold disc. I'm on Woody's Got Lords, you know. I'm, I mean, I should have got a gold disc for Boy at the Beeb and Space Oddity album. And this year, I got a gold disc with Face Oddity. Wow. Which I thought, well, you know, so this year I got this gold disc. So, yeah, but you're right, you know, so when this come out and they said um, there's going to be an album and it's going to be, I mean, they sent me about four box sets and the vinyl thing, which are, which are real nice, you know. And I thought, yeah, you know, it's not like I'm on that one, not on that one, I'm on like two sides, which is real nice, you know. Mm-hmm. From being like a nobody, you know, and like, like as I said, all the tracks I did, Nobody, nobody's out of them. <laughs> so to be in an album now where it's like I'm on most of them, it's very nice. Yeah, and you're still active. You're still playing live. Yeah, I mean, with a little, I'm, I'm with, with a local group now. With all, all friends who I've known, all sort of our, our age. You know what I mean? In our sixties and seventies, and we're just doing all this sort of like rock and that. It's we're doing the thin, thinly covered Robert Palmer and all this sort of thing. You know, the heavy rock sort of thing. Great for a drum and a bass player and a guitarist to play. With, so it, it just, it just shake all the cobwebs off. And it's just like. It's like a few mates now going out to play golf every now and again. So it's a hobby. But we called it, we couldn't think of a name. I and mean, it was waiting ages and ages to try and get a name. And me and the singer was Brian, was in the pub. And we just saw this in, across the road, looking at the window. And it said, Rebels Steakhouse. So I said, well, we'll call out, call out send the Rebels. 
So Brian shortened it to Rebel. So when I came home, and because we've been like six months trying to get a name, so my wife Angela says, "How can you call yourself Rebel when you're all in your sixties and seventies? You can't be a rebel when you know." So I come up with, with this sort of like, well, it, it stands for rejuvenated elderly blokes enjoying life. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> What a pleasure it's been to talk to you, John. I always prefer musical books that are written by people that were there because generally you know it's going to be accurate and it's not a journalist just regurgitating. There's no better thing to to get an insight into those early days of of David Bowie there, so I heartily recommend Bowie, Cambo and all the hype. Another thing, Jake, why I've said that and all these, like when people say and you get people writing these books, well, how can you remember that from all them years ago? And how can you, like like yeah. you just saying last year? But what people, what I haven't told you is, when I first started playing drums at 15 years old, the very first booking I ever did, I wrote down. And I kept a diary. And I wrote a diary, and I have done it ever since. So all the, through the boy period, and all through the recordings, all through the gigs, everything, it's facts. And one little story, Ken Pitt, the first time Ken Pitt, David's manager, when I came back home about two or three months later, and he rang me, hi, John. He said, oh, he said, I'm writing a book. He said, he was the first person I helped write a, uh, write a, a boy book. He said, I'm just trying to check on something. He said, do you remember when you did a gig? It was about March, February time, 70 at the so-and-so, so-and-so. I said, I can tell you exactly when it was, Ken. Mm. Can you? Oh, how was that? I said, because I've written it down. Oh, brilliant, he says. And then Kevin Kahn, Kevin Kahn came up to see me in, when we had the pub in Beverly. And I gave him all the books and all that. And he, he wrote them all down. He sat there for ages copying them. So Kevin's are all, you know, but if I hadn't written all them down, all these so-called books wouldn't be there. So the, the original one that says so-and-so David played there at some little pub, it's because I wrote it down. Amazing. I wish you all the best with the release of uh, Bowie Cambo and all the hype. Thank you very much, Jason. Thanks for your time. Okay, cheers, Jason. Bye, bye.
the Russian band, our old bass player. That was a gas. Pleasure doing business with you. Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.